I'm Neil Benson from Customary. This is Amazing Apps, where Microsoft Business Apps builders like you can find lessons and stories from the people building amazing Agile, Dynamics 365, and Power Platform apps. I've got two businesses. Customary, that produces this show, is my Agile training and coaching business. And Superware is my business apps, ISV, and systems integration business. As I'm recording this, my Superware team is just a few weeks away from another big Go Live event for one of our customers. All the features have been built, and so we're in the final stages of preparing for the first major release into production. It's fantastic timing then to have Andrew Bibby joining me on Amazing Apps. Andrew is one fourth of the Proximo 3. They're like the fantastic four of the Microsoft Business Apps ecosystem. Andrew is the Customer Success Director at Proximo 3. He's also Microsoft MVP and MCT, and he's the chairperson of the Dynamics 365 and Power Platform UK user group. He's also a board member of the IAMCP. It sounds really busy, but he's always so laid back and relaxed. In this episode, he uses his 20 years of hard-won experience to advise Microsoft customers on how to set themselves up for successful business applications initiatives. Andrew is an expert on go-lives. In this episode, we share our stories with each other about what's made our customers' projects increasingly successful at the pointy end, the go-live. We've witnessed the rise of the professional change manager being embraced by customer and partner teams, the payback from sustained investments in early testing and in end-user training, and we even debate the merits of going live on different days of the week. This is episode 150. You'll find a summary of our conversation with resources and a transcript at amazingapps.show slash 150. Let's start with Andrew sharing his definition of a go live and whether the big bang approach to going live is still as common as ever. Here's Andrew Bibby from Proximo 3. Andrew Bibby from Proximo 3, welcome back to Amazing Apps. It's fantastic to have you back on the show. How have you been, my friend? I'm very good. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. Yeah, it's uh, always good to see you. I would love to pick your brains about going live with Dynamics 365 or Power Platform applications. And it's, you know, it's a topic that you've got a lot of expertise and a lot of experience with, with major customers releasing their application into production. Um, can we start with just defining what we mean by a go-live event? How do you put your arms around it and define a go-live? Yeah, I think this has probably changed a bit over the years. So I've been doing Dynamics 365 for about uh, 16 years now, and it used to be that projects were very much like Big Bang kind of implementation, often literally Big Bang. And then, you know, project kind of goes live, everybody shuts down and, and then everyone goes away. But now, and I, I much prefer to see this, is that a, a go-live can be very much like a phased affair. It can be going live with particular functionality and then it's basically planning for the next release, and then there's another go live. And if you take it to the the extremes that maybe you guys do in your company, you can be going live every two weeks and delivering functionality in that way. I most often see customers, though, do this kind of mix of agile and waterfall where there is some kind of go live event, you know, that the users start using the new system rather than it being a very sort of small, gradual affair. So, yeah, a go live. It is normally an event where you're changing from an old system to a new system. There's maybe a data migration that needs to happen. And and then at some point, everybody starts using the new system and stops using the old system. And then hopefully you deliver more functionality after that. So 
That's what I normally see. And they can be big and small. It could be for 20 users. It could be 200 users or 1,000 users, you know. But fairly sort of similar approach. It's just a, a, a question of scale and preparation for those bigger go-live events. It mirrors my experience exactly. So although I love the idea of going into production really early with a small set of features, that's pretty hard to slice off a few features when you're replacing a legacy application. Mm. You've really got to wait until most of your features in that legacy application are available in the new application before you can cut over. And so it's normally quite late. It is quite a big release, that initial release into production. And then, like you said, doing incremental releases in the weeks and months after that. I'd love to go into production much earlier, but you know, the availability of the data, mm. the functionality, just that's not practical. So I'm probably in the same boat as you and some of your customers. Yeah. Andrew, you mentioned that some of your customers had had a very successful go live events recently, and you were reflecting back on what you thought made those so successful. Can we just start with what mm. is the definition of a successful go live? What are you measuring to determine that, yes, that was a great release? It went really well. What, what are you looking at in order to make that assessment? Yeah, I think, you know, from the most sort of practical perspective is, is you go live and then you're kind of waiting by the phone almost, you know, you're waiting for people to get in touch with you and, and tell you what's wrong. And then that doesn't happen. And then you're kind of, you know, I had this experience a couple of months ago working with a customer. We did a lot of preparation in, in to get ready for the go live. But it's always this bit of an unknown, particularly as when we're, we're working remotely. This was a customer in Canada, different time zones, you know, we're not actually on the ground. And it just didn't happen. And I, I got in touch with a customer to say, you know, is everything all right? And they were saying, yes, it's absolutely fine. A couple of little teething things where maybe a user hasn't been set up properly, that sort of thing. And it, it really made me think, actually, what, what did we do here that was different to previously. And I think there's a lot of different components that go into that successful go live. And we, we can talk about some of those, but ultimately it's about getting ready. It's making sure everybody's ready. You know, the, the solution's technically ready. People are ready to receive the new system. They know what they're doing. There's good communication. And then you're much more likely to have, you know, smoother go live. And ultimately it's what everybody wants, you know, as a Microsoft partner, you want a good go live because obviously that's a reflection on the work that you've done or it often, even if it's not your fault in inverted commas, you know, that's where the reflection would be from the customer's perspective. Poor go live. They're always going to look at the partner. It's like what went wrong. So partner looks good. The customer looks good because they've got happy users. The product team look good on both sides, you know, so everybody's happy really. So the more effort you put into that successful go live event, the happier everyone is and everybody wants a successful you know, project, right? And that then leads on to happy customers and potentially more business in the future. So why not put a lot of, a lot of effort, if you can, into that, that transition from the old to the new? I think it's very important. So tell us your, maybe, maybe you've got three key secrets you've learned over the last couple of successful releases where you find successful patterns perhaps that, that are repeatable that we can learn from. Is it, you know, does it all come down to change management? Does it come down to the way the user interface has been configured or the training material? Mm. What have you found are the key kind of pillars of a successful release? The technical problems you can have getting ready, you know, fixing issues, fixing bug, bugs and things like that are largely understandable and you know that they're going to happen or, you know, they're not likely to just immediately catch you out providing you've done enough testing and things like that 
But I would say that it's all about preparation. It's that old saying of fail to prepare, prepare to fail, particularly on bigger projects. And I worked on a, a multi-year project. I think actually we talked about that on a previous podcast. And they put a huge amount of effort into the go-live planning. There was uh, a project manager dedicated to that, to go-live. And it was his job to plan the go-live and get all the resources aligned and also plan step-by-step. This is what's happening minute by minute, you know, of what's happening in which order, what happens if there's issues, you know, who to get in contact with, what's remediation or mitigation of those issues. So it's the more planning you do, the, the more successful you're going to be. So have a go live plan, even if it's quite a small project, you want to go through that sort of step-by-step process, but also rehearse that. So two reasons to rehearse as realistically as you possibly can. One is that you're going to find problems that you would experience, you know, during the real go live. And that's generally things like security setup, access to systems, things like that. That's very common. But also you're going to get timings and that's very important as well on some projects. You know, you're going to understand how long it's going to take to do each of these steps, particularly when you've got things like a data migration to do. If you can rehearse a data migration as realistically as possible, you know what your go live window is, you know. So if you've got a go live window of, let's say, I don't know, a Sunday night or a weekend or an overnight, you've got eight hours to do the go live. If your data migration takes 10 hours, then you're immediately, you know, you're on the back foot. But if you don't rehearse, you're never going to know that, or at least you can only kind of guess how long something's going to take. But yeah, rehearsals and timing and also that mitigation of issues that that may come up, planning for that. So you're not running around wondering what to do next or trying to call people up at 11 o'clock on a Friday night, you know, to get them involved. It's all about preparation. The more preparation you do, the more rehearsal you do, the smoother things will be will be, and, and ultimately nobody wants a stressful go live. Nobody wants to be up all night, you know, trying to fix issues. And I have been there. I've been up awake, you know, on shifts an entire weekend with hotels booked nearby for the project team so that they can go get some rest in between nightmare go live. Ultimately what that, what that does, it, it impacts confidence from everybody that's impacted by the new solution. And if you impact the confidence in that solution, you're going to get poor user adoption or you're very likely to. And it's a snowball effect of then people aren't using the new system. You're not going to get that return on investment. And then you're really on an uphill battle to try and get those people back on board. So it's a nice smooth go live. Everything else after that is also much easier. I'm just reflecting on some of my recent big go live events. One where there was a massive data migration. We had set aside two or three days and done at least two rehearsals, like a full data migration rehearsal, got the timings right. And that really informed our go live. And it was kind of a one way, you know, we're, we're out of leaving this legacy system behind. Mm-hmm. More recently, we're, we're preparing to go live and our data migration strategy is quite different. We have migrated all the data quite early because yep. there's still a synchronization going on with yep. the legacy system. So it's not a one-time event. And that's just made everything a lot more relaxed. We can get all the records migrated. And then just let any changes in that legacy system over the next couple of weeks you know, synchronize into our Dynamics 365 application and not have to worry about a massive data migration mm. over the weekend. I think that's a really good point. I mean, I mean, just generally, the more you can do before you go live, before that date of go live, the easier everything is going to be, or even afterwards as well. So I've done migrations where, you know, you may be migrating a huge amount of data, but a lot of that is historical. 
And so you can migrate that beforehand, or you can even say, okay, but it's not important for the day-to-day running, but maybe we need it for analytics or something, something like that. We can even run that after the go live and just continue to run, run the migration afterwards. But yeah, it, not just migration, the more you can do to prepare and do those go live steps, really look through the go live plan and say, what can we do before we go live? like setting up users and making sure they've got the right security and things like that. It's always security that trips you up. You know, immediately somebody tries to log into the system and they can't access something that they need to, probably because it's uh, configured wrong. So I've definitely been through that as well. I find that just for that security thing, it does quite often bite us on the the backside. What a little trick I've found reasonably successful is we set up all the users with all the right security privileges, as we've been you know, informed that they've got the right team memberships and the right security roles. Mm-hmm. We set them up like that in the training environment. And then when we mm-hmm. invite them in to come in and participate in training, that's when they go, oh, Neil, I've got the wrong security role. I can't see this record I'm supposed to be working. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, yeah, yeah. that allows us, before we go live, that they've logged into a lifelike environment, a production-like environment, and discovered mm-hmm. that we've got security setting up rather yeah. than Monday morning, go live and get thousands yeah. of users screaming at us. Yeah. yeah. And the more users, right, the more impacted users, the bigger your problems will be. I've actually had years ago a project for a big uh, insurance broker and there was, it wasn't a huge user number of users, but there were very important users, about a hundred people. And I had the CTO of that billion dollar uh, insurance company tell me on the day of go live, because everybody was shouting at him to make everybody system administrator. Yeah. And so that's what we did. <laughs> Not very, you know, it's not something that you'd want to carry on doing, but yeah, it's always security that trips you out. I learned that early on in my career and that was quite early on. But yeah, then you're really on an uphill battle to get everybody back on side. A couple of other big pillars to a successful go live, I imagine you'll you'll have seen this through your experience as well. One is your approach to testing and the second one is change management. Can we we touch on testing first of all? Mm, What kind mm. of testing approaches or strategies have you seen work well and lead up to a great go live. For example, should we be doing user acceptance ter- testing early and often during our build, or is it better to wait and concentrate all that user acceptance testing you know, for a period just before we release into production? Yeah, I think that's, that's a good question. It's going to depend a lot on the customer and what sort of time and resources they have available. I think there is an overlap between testing and, and change management almost because what you're trying to do is show the system to users early and often, as you said. So there's an element of testing. It can be almost like UAT, depending on the state of the system. But as soon as something is working enough, you know, and meets the requirements for you to be able to show it to users and say, you know, is this correct? Can you test it? Can you use it how you would normally use it in your day job? And you can do that early on. You know, that doesn't need to wait until this big block of testing right towards the end of the project. That said, you know, on a lot of projects, you do need structured UAT. It needs to be, you know, well-documented, the processes that people are going through to make sure that they're going through every single scenario that needs to be tested. And you need to have those, you know, the results from the testing, the quality uh, metrics from that to identify issues and be able to prioritize issues in order to fix them or not fix them before go live. But I'm a a big advocate of showing people uh, the right people the solution as early as you possibly can and throughout the project as well. You don't have to show everybody, but there's a real uh, benefit to getting early people that are interested in the project on board early doors 
And then they can help evangelize this change that's happening to the organization, to their peers, to their network, to say, actually, this is a good thing that's happening because that's what you need to address for everybody. Nobody likes change. Everybody's resistance change. Right now, I'm using a Windows laptop and I'm used to a MacBook and this is uncomfortable for me, but I had to change laptop. So, you know, it it makes everybody uncomfortable. And when you're in an organization, it's people's jobs. They can be worried about actually, is my job going to change? Are they going to still need me? This is really important stuff for people. So getting users on board early, as early as you possibly can, and it's just going to make everybody a bit more interested, a bit more excited for the, the change that you're bringing in. What I would say though, and I see this on almost every project, and I rail against it every time, when you get towards go live, what are the first two things that get cut? Training and testing. You know, because you always think, oh, we, we left loads of time for training, so we're just going to cut that in half. That'll be fine. And likewise with testing, you know, that's where the pressure points, the pressure builds throughout the project. At the start, everybody's quite relaxed. You've got lots of time, budget, and all that kind of stuff. As you get towards the end of a project, it starts being, you know, why isn't this going live? Why have we got so many problems? Are we going to still hit this date? And then the testing starts to get cut. And what happens is they're the two most important things on a project. You want to make sure that your solution is going to work as expected and people know how to use it. You know, otherwise, first of all, if it's not working as expected and, and users see a lot of issues early on, again, they're not going to want to use that system and you're impacting the user adoption. Likewise, if they don't know how to use it properly, they're not going to want to use it either. It's not unreasonable to ensure that people are prepared to use this thing that you're delivering to them. You're not doing this thing to them. You're, it's a partnership. You're trying to help them do their job better. But what I do see is, yeah, is, is testing be cut as like, a, oh, that's the first thing on the list that's going to go when it's got a massive impact on user adoption and that return on investment that the organization is looking for. If people are not using the solution or not using it to the extent that they should, it's not going to pay for itself, you know, in, in which case you're going to have an un- unhappy customer at the end of the day. That was a bit of a rant. Sorry about that. <laughs> I have this idealized view of the world, perhaps, that we should be doing continuous testing and having mm. users involved in sprints and testing the features before we declare them done so that we can avoid this late phase of, of user acceptance testing. And I think I'm perhaps being a little bit naive and hoping that UAT will just go away as a block of activity yeah. at the end of a project. I think yeah. for, for all the reasons you mentioned, it's still necessary. We still need to show and demonstrate the quality metrics are there. Mm. thoroughly tested all the business scenarios that the integrations are working that the data migration has been all mapped correctly mm. and mm. you can't do all of that at the start of the project you're going to have to do some of it towards the end so yeah i can't get away from it but i can shrink the size of it i, I can shrink the impact yeah. of it and give her you know uncovering the issues early gives us a chance to triage them in the middle of the project rather than at the end decide whether or not to fix them uh, get that feedback make sure that the the applications are better fit because we've had that feedback all along the way. So it's, it's a closer, you know, mesh towards what the user they wanted, not just what they need. Try and do it during the project. Training, I think it's probably still, most of that still happens toward the end of the project. We're still, yeah, we've got our testers and they're now super users and they're evangelizing the application, like you said, and they're often our, our change champions. And they might be leading the, the training. I've seen yep. that work really yep. well. 
I don't know, do you, do you have a point of view, just touching on training for a second, training the end users, who's best place to do it? Have you seen outside trainers come in, project team members? Yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah, I think that it's it's probably something that not enough thought is put into. You know, I, I think there's there's a certain way that the organizations are used to delivering IT projects. You know, like you're saying about UAT, they're used to having a, a, a block of UAT towards the end of a project, and then they can dedicate people to do that because you're taking time away from people's day jobs, and you, and and it's more difficult for organizations sometimes to do that throughout the project. Um, and so they kind of think, well, we're just going to do this two weeks or whatever. And it's sort of the same with training in that we've got this real, I'm going to say it's an immature view of, you know, you just train somebody for a couple of hours on how to use the system and then that's it. It's like giving somebody one lesson on how to drive a car. It it just doesn't work to train somebody and it might be a month before you go live, you know, or two weeks before you go live and then they don't touch it again. They forget half of what they've been told and then you say, okay, well, we're going to give you this training manual and it's 50 pages or 100 pages. Nobody's reading that. Nobody's watching this back, this recorded training back, you know, for three hours or whatever. So this this approach we've got of training just being this one-off event before we go live and then that's it, when actually really what you need to do, it, it, you do need to get people ready and training is part of that. But for there to be continual training after go live to help mop up those people either that couldn't attend the training or they didn't quite get it or they didn't, you know, discover the, the, this feature that they now have to use. So it needs to be a continual training effort is one point. But I would say, you know, you touched on the who's best to deliver that training. It most often, in my experience, falls to the partner to deliver the training because they know the solution, which I think is a terrible idea because a lot of the time those partners, and they're not trainers for a start, they can probably write a training manual because they know the system, but it will be dry and, you know, nobody wants to read it and it'll be out of date within a couple of months. What is a really good idea, I think you mentioned there, is actually having those change champions, those early adopters, the peers of the teams within your organization to be delivering training as well. Now, I'm not sure practically how often people would be up for doing that. But I think it's a really good idea from the perspective of you're hearing from somebody as the person being trained, you're hearing from somebody that's within your organization that knows your business, that knows what you do. You're going to listen to them more. So maybe it's a combination of partner and customer. Do you want to learn how to estimate complex business apps in minutes, not hours or even days? Do you want to avoid costly estimation mistakes and instead deliver projects on time and on budget? Does your team want to impress your customers and your manager with your skills and confidence? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you need to listen to Estimating Business Apps, my new podcast mini-series. In just five episodes, you'll learn my proven practices, tips, tricks, and tools for estimating complex power platform and Dynamics 365 apps. And if you stick around until the last episode, you'll get access to a very special offer that will help you take your estimating skills to the next level. Subscribe to Estimating Business Apps today and start listening to the first episode. Andrew had a, a recent project where, for a financial services firm, we had a couple of hundred users, made great support from change champions throughout the, the project, doing early UAT for us. They then worked really closely with the change management team, which is a, you know, a couple of permanent consultants worked for our customer and they collaborated together to, to produce the training plan that 
training content. And it was the Change Champions who delivered it. As a Microsoft partner, we had almost nothing to do with the training and that was delivered. And the feedback that I heard was, it was awesome. It was delivered by peers who knew the system really well, who knew the business processes and the culture, who knew what stories to share. And that's, I think it's really vital. You know, examples of customer scenarios that they were able to solve or sales opportunities and how they would handle those in the new system or support cases or whatever your business process is. And hearing that, how to do that from a team leader or a peer in your organization, I think is way more impactful than a professional trainer, an MCT or whatever they happen to have. It carries far more weight. It comes from somebody inside your organization. Completely agree. I think that's the dream scenario, really, where you've got people that are willing to deliver that training and they've got some experience in how to do that. Because ultimately, a lot of the time, Microsoft partners, the, the people that are expected to, de- to deliver training are not trainers either. You know, they're functional consultants or they're business analysts or whatever, because they happen to know the system. But absolutely, they don't know the business as well as people that are doing that, that job day to day. What about um, change management then? That's another important pillar. Is there more to change management than just communicating what's coming, mm. you know, putting up posters, Yammer posts, uh, sending out emails to the users? What more is involved in a great change management strategy? Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned there that the project you worked on had change management people dedicated to it. That's that, that's a, a unicorn, you know, in my experience is that a lot of organizations don't really take change management seriously. So I think uh, change management is, is ultimately just getting people ready for the change that they're about to experience. So it's a kind of flowery title, but that's that's the top and bottom of it. It's making, it's the people side of change is what it's called. It's not about technology at all, but it, it is most often it's, it's comes down to training and it comes down to some communications, like you say, and that is very often a few emails that get sent out in the weeks running up to go live, which, you know, predictably has poor results because people don't read emails. They don't pay attention during training. I do the same thing just quietly. We're all likely to do this kind of thing. So you need to change management and and actually getting people ready has to be a more fundamental part of a project. And where I see difficulties with that is with organizations that can't see the benefit of it. But ultimately, and this is proved through a lot of change management methodologies, it it is proven through research that if you do good change management, you're much, much more likely to A, have a successful go live, a successful project much better return on investment and good user adoption and good happy users. You know, ultimately that's what everybody wants. In particular, you want to see that money come back, right? So if you've invested a million dollars into a project, you expect to see more than that come back. Otherwise, what's the point? Literally, what's the point of spending a million dollars and not getting that back? There's not many scenarios where you can justify that. And that's where it comes down to the argument of saying, well, why spend money getting people ready? Why spend money on change management? Because it's adding to the budget of the project. It might be 10, 20% of the project, you know, quite a lot of money. But if you're adding that money and then you're seeing it back because you've got good user adoption, then it's paying for itself. It's a no brainer. And then you'll do it on the next project and the next project. So again, mini rant there, but yeah, in terms of what you can do to get get ready. It is that investment throughout the project. It's involving people early, even before the project starts for the customer organization to start telling people that this is what we're planning to do. These are the benefits to you. And that's most often the question you need to answer is what's in it for me? You know, how is my life going to be better to each individual user? 
what are the benefits to the organization, when it's going to happen, and then it's keeping that communication going. It's regular updates throughout the project lifecycle to the impacted users, and that should be done in different ways, not just emails, not just posters, like you say, not just gamma posts or uh, internal sort of communication, uh, because you're only going to catch a certain number of people with it, with that communication so it should be done lots of different ways everybody should know what's happening and a key point is that the communication should come from the right person or people that the person receiving that communication will actually listen to so whether that's the ceo or the team leader or you know the manager or whoever it needs to come from a person that the people receiving that communication either have to listen to or want to listen to and then you're going to get much more effective communication as you go through. But communication throughout the project, keeping everybody up to date on what's happening, when it's happening, how things are going. And you can be open about issues that you've had and delays and things like that. These things happen on every project, so why not uh, tell people about them? But that's the key pillar of change management, or one of them anyway, is that communication. And having a communication plan, it's very often left to somebody as a bit of a side job to actually communicate what's happening. Like you said there on your project, you need dedicated resource. And actually, if you have dedicated resource, things go much better because people have got time to do a good job on that communication and, you know, training and whatever else needs to happen. So t 10 years ago, I don't think there was any change management in most of my projects. It's yeah. becoming much more common. Um, yeah. And that's, that's a great thing. I think it's a reason why my more recent projects have been more successful. Mm. We've had better change management. And with that financial services firm, we had a change manager as part of our Scrum team. So in Scrum, well, we have developers who are building the product, and it's normally analysts and, and makers and architects, developers. And this time, we had a change manager. And the change manager had product backlog items to build, just like we did. And wow. they were the communication plan and the executive briefing pack mm. and you know the training needs analysis study and all these artifacts that were not technical, they're not power platform components, mm. but they were contributing towards the successful deployment of our application. And I remember a couple of the executive briefings we were doing where he's you know, showing the communications plan. But like you said, the, the, the communication wasn't always just coming from him. He was feeding his executives with things that they could say in their town hall, mm. in their mm. next monthly update to their team members. So that the communication was coming from all corners of the organization, from top to bottom. Uh, and through our change champions, it's coming from the bottom back upwards again. And it was yeah, a pleasure to behold. I, you know, it's definitely yeah. a key learning that I'll take away to, to future projects is do it like that. Honestly, that's fantastic. And, and I have never worked on a project that has taken it that far. But I think that's exactly the sort of approach that, that needs to happen because change comes from the top in that, you know, managers and team leaders are going to listen to their superiors and you know all the way up to the executive so if, if the messaging is coming down from the top that's the most effective way of getting yeah. messaging across but also from the bottom as well from the troops on the ground you know if you've got some of them on board you're in a much better position but it requires resource it requires budget fundamentally but i think you know ultimately you're going to have a much more successful project and it's actually proven by research if you do excellent change management on a project you're six times more likely to have a successful project. You're five times more likely to be on time and deliver it on time. And you're twice as likely to not exceed the budget you've got or even be under budget. I can't remember the last time I worked on a project that was under budget. 
But yeah, change management, whilst it's a bit of a buzzword, it's really, really effective way of having a more successful project. And, and ultimately, who doesn't want a successful project? Yeah. Everybody. So I'm, I'm seven weeks out with my next customer. They're going live on Monday, 9th of October. Hopefully this episode gets published before then and we, we are successful <laughs> in October. You talked earlier about choosing the right day. Mm. Is Monday, we're talking about the other things that we can do to be successful in this go live, but is Monday a good day? Or why would you not choose a Monday, Andrew? Yeah, I think I go back and forth on this and I, th- I think it, I was going to ask you the same question because you've got lots of experience <laughs> in this. My experience is that, that it depends on the organization and depends on the team. My, my reluctance to go live on a Monday is all about you're, you basically you're expecting people to work on a weekend. You can get, you can do as much preparation as you want the weeks before that. And you can be, you can say on Friday, okay, we're ready to go. But if something goes wrong, you need to have people ready over the weekend. And like it or not, some people are not willing to do that or don't want to do that, or you might have to pay them some more money. And it also adds more pressure as well. If everybody's is logging in 9 a.m. on Monday morning and using the new system, things have to be working. If they're not working, then you know it's a lot, it's a lot to manage. And that's not to say choosing a different day of the week. So I, I would prefer to go live on a Wednesday. And you've got, you know, hopefully a fairly calm lead up to that Wednesday. You've got some time with people actually in the office to be able to test things and do more rehearsal. You're not expecting people to work on the weekend, even though they might end up doing that, but it's less likely. It's all about sort of lowering the pressure of a go live, all of that preparation and, and practice. If you've got a successful go live, then everything goes nice and smoothly and you've got a happy everybody. And I find that if you're going live on a on a Wednesday, that's, that suits me in a lot more scenarios, but it just depends on the organization. Sometimes you yeah. can't do that. You know, if you've got hundreds and hundreds of users, you need to have a particular day and then that's it. But yeah, I'd be interested to, to understand why you chose the Monday or why the organization chose Monday. Uh, oh, it wasn't my, wasn't my choice. And I, I think it's maybe, it's maybe, a, it's maybe a habit because data migration events quite often are the, are the yeah. long pole in the tent. If you think about it, the activity that takes the longest, and it's hard to compress, it's data migration. Yeah. Sometimes it just takes 36 hours to migrate all the data from a legacy system over into, into Dataverse. And unless you've figured out a strategy for pre-migrating the data, that yeah. can quite often be a you know last-minute go-live activity. And therefore, you want to give yourself a weekend when there's not as much usage of the system or no usage of the system mm-hmm. to uh, go live on a Monday. I don't think that's necessary in this example. I think we could have picked any day of the week. And I remember a policy, more or less, at Henderson Global Investors in London many, many years ago when I worked there. Their preferred go live was a Friday morning because Friday, traditionally, in the finance sector in London, is a reasonably quiet day in terms mm. of trading and investments and customer service and everything. It, it was much quieter than most of the other days of the week. Monday morning was pretty busy, actually. Lots of activity kicking off at the start of the week. Friday allowed them to make a decision, you know, go live, what's it successful? If not, we're going to revert back to the old system on Monday morning, but we've got all weekend to fix it if there was an emergency and mm. it came up. Um, but Friday was a pretty low pressure, low key way to um, ease the users into the new system. And then the database administrators typically would knock off at one o'clock on Friday and you'd find them in a the pub if you had to call them back in. So yeah, Fridays seem to work well in the city of London. I don't know if the, the culture changed. But I, I don't think Monday mornings 
best time to go live in the new system. It's too much, too much pressure. Yeah, I think there's some good reasons you mentioned there, particularly around data migration. But if you can migrate data before or after to try and minimize that window, I think that's you know a good approach. But yeah, it's going to come down to the organization, particularly the internal IT resources, I find, and when they're available and when they're willing to work, because you're going to, it's going to be a team effort. Uh, but yes, I, a Friday, I can see some of the benefits there, but I guess I'd be worried that actually when people start using the system, they start on Friday and then they go away for the weekend, maybe only do an hour on Friday morning. And then on Monday, they're like, oh, well, how do we do this again? And so maybe there's a bit more sort of mopping up of training and things like that, but probably quite minimal. Lots of things we talk about there are really people impacts that you need to consider. They're not technical things, but other than the data migration. There's so many people factors to our projects rather than technical things anymore. And yeah, it could be, where are the people located? Is it a global mm. deployment? You know, do we have time zones and languages mm. to think about mm. as well? You know, lots of factors that come into it and they're very organization dependent. Yeah. Have you seen customers with great measurements for measuring the success or the impact of the application? You know, we talk about user adoption, but are they measuring case resolution times in the old system and then measuring those in the new system over the course of the first few weeks and months? And, and to be honest, I've never seen a customer with that much rigor uh, or other KPIs yeah. that, that is measuring the, the outcomes of the new application. Have you had any success stories with customers measuring those kind of impacts? Yeah, again, this is a, a good question. And, and I've had similar experience in that people, the project team is so focused on delivering the project from both sides, partner side and customer side, and not really so concerned about what happens after go live. But ultimately, somebody went to the board, let's say, and said, we need a million dollars to replace this system. And the board said, okay, great. When can we expect to see that money back in, in efficiencies, in fewer support calls, in quicker processes, better customer experience, ultimately? And then it's easy to come up with a load of reasons to say, okay, this process that used to take four hours is now going to take two hours because we've put some automation in. So you can easily build out the benefits early on and justify that investment. But then ultimately, once you go live, you have to be able to prove that those things that you said are reality, or at least if they're not, what benefits are there? And it might be that you've shortened that process to three hours rather than four hours, but there's still benefit there. But if you don't have those metrics built into the system, there's no way to measure that other than some kind of time motion study, which are you know, painful for everybody. So, so building in uh, metrics and uh, is how you you can justify the original investment, and that's going to help you justify the following investment because we're not in a world where it's a, a, a one-off deployment anymore. You need to continually invest in your systems. So this is something I can, I have to, sounds patronizing, but educate customers that we need to build this stuff in. And if it's going to be built in, they need to be in the backlog. Those things need to be built. They need to be tested. You need to do reporting and maybe have some analytics out the back. It all has to be built. And that's, that's going to cost some money and take some time and resource. But if you don't do that, you haven't very little way of being able to prove whether your system is a success or not, whether it's going to benefit the organization or not in the way that you expect. So, but I'm exactly in the same boat is, is most customers don't do that. And what I often find actually is that the people that approve that budget in the first place, they're not all that interested either. They've spent the money, they're on to the next thing or they've left 
And that's very often the, the, the case on bigger projects. You know, the people that were involved originally have moved on. And so there isn't the pressure to, to prove that actually this is a success. But if you're not doing that, you don't know if you're delivering the benefit and the value to the organization. And so you can't continue to do that. It's much harder to justify continuing that investment. So yeah, absolutely. They're building these metrics. The other thing is to, is to build in monitoring of your solution as well so that you're getting ahead of any issues that occur. So monitoring integrations, monitoring that user experience so that you can try and fix these things before they become bigger problems, which is going to impact your user adoption because people don't like using a system that's really slow or, you know, has error messages popping up left and right. So if you're, mo if you're monitoring performance and error messages and things like that and getting ahead of those, again, you're going to have a better user experience, better return on investment. So, and that's also something I don't see done very often, probably a bit more often than monitoring kind of business benefit. But yeah, that's another important aspect. Yeah, there are a couple of kind of critical ones there, Andrew. So thanks for the nudge and the reminder. A couple of things I have mm. to take back to our product owner next week and uh, make sure she's considered those in her backlog. So we've we've covered approaches to go live. You know, what is a go live? Should we stagger it? Should we have a big bag and release? Should we try and do phase releases? We mm. talked about the importance of user training, testing early, change management, getting our communications, and the change champions going. Talking about monitoring and a business case benefits realization. So so much ground we've covered. Is there anything else that you want to add in for the audience before we let you go? No, I would say that everything that you mentioned there. There's a lot of effort, right? I think that ultimately, if this was easy, everybody would do it. You know, everyone would have successful projects and successful go lives, and everybody would have an easier life. But all each of those things also takes investment, and that the, we need to get across this message of being able to justify the investment in these almost non-functional areas. So they're not satisfying business requirements often, but they are contributing to the success of a project. Ultimately, you can build a, a, a system that meets every single business requirement. You've done a great job as a partner. You delivered everything that you, you said you would. You're on time, on budget. But if people aren't using the solution, nobody wins. Customer doesn't win. Partner doesn't win because you're not going to get called back to do that next phase. I think it's all about this getting across the message that there is more to projects than technical delivery. And as you said, there is more appreciation than there used to be of that. But just getting a, the project across the line, that's just the first step. Ultimately, in incorporating change management, you're much more likely to be successful. So Andrew, I believe customers, particularly in the UK, can, can always tap into Proximo 3. You've got a, a crack team of very experienced business applications consultants, if somebody is looking for you know, that expert assistance, maybe doing some, some go-live planning, how can people get hold of you if they want to uh, get in touch? Yeah, absolutely. Well, visit our website, proximo3.com. Um, we're on all of the socials, but uh, also, yeah, contact me on LinkedIn. I'm fairly easy to find. And yeah, get in touch. Always happy to help, even if it's just a conversation and, and you're looking for some advice or uh, you'd like a bit more sort of a structured approach where we can come in and, and bring our 40 odd years of experience on business applications projects to your project and, and help you avoid some of those pitfalls. So yes, please do reach out. And have you got any conference uh, presentations or sessions planned where people can, can tap into some of your experiences yes. sitting in the front row? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Great. Uh, great point. Um, yeah, I have. There's a conference in Copenhagen coming up next month called Nordic Summit. 
uh, nordicsummit.info. Uh, I'm doing a session there. It's actually on Copilot uh, and using all the Copilot tools within Power Platform. So that should be fun. And also, I'm, I'm hoping to be speaking at South Coast Summit, which is in the UK as well. And I'm actually, one of the sessions I've submitted for that is around go live planning. It's a free event. I'll look for that at southcoastsummit.com. And yeah, come along and I'm happy to ta- talk over any of these aspects. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, I wish you well at the, in the Nordic Summit and hopefully your sessions get picked up at South Coast Summit as well. I wish you could be there. But uh, thanks so much for joining me on Amazing Apps today. No problem at all. Thanks for having me. Always good to talk. Thanks, Andrew, for joining me on Amazing Apps. It was great to catch up with you. Pass on my regards to the rest of the awesome foursome at Proximo 3. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Andrew as well. If you did, there are two things you can do right now, just before we close out episode 150. If you've got a story to share about going live with Dynamics 365 or Power Platform, come and share it on the show. Send me a message on LinkedIn or drop me an email, neil at customary.com. I'd love to feature a greater diversity of voices and stories on amazing apps, not just from Microsoft MVPs. It could be you. If you're not quite ready to join me on the show, the next best thing you can do is to ensure that other people uh, is to leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or on the show's website at amazingapps.show slash reviews. It helps prospective guests know that there's someone listening and enjoying the content I'm trying to create for you. That's it for now. Until next time, keep experimenting.